Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome to Come Follow Me 2020. We are starting out a brand new year of Come Follow Me material, and I am so excited to share it with you. We are going to be discussing the first lesson of the 2020 Come Follow Me curriculum. It's going to be December 30 through January 5th. The introductory pages of the Book of Mormon is what we are focusing on today. Now, this year, I am so excited to talk about the Book of Mormon. Um, I think, number one, it's going to be a little bit easier for most of us to understand culturally. Um, I also think that it bears a stronger witness, even more so than the New Testament does, of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and of the doctrine surrounding Jesus Christ, and not even necessarily a stronger witness, but a more complete witness. I was talking to my son, actually, the other day. He asked me, what does your church believe that my church doesn't? My husband and my son go to a different church. And I said, well, buddy, we believe like a lot of the same things. I just feel like my church has more of the puzzle pieces. Like there's a big puzzle and your church maybe has five puzzle pieces. And my church has maybe like nine puzzle pieces. I still think that there's puzzle pieces missing from both of them, that there's just things that we just don't know on this earth. But I believe that we have a more complete picture of the gospel. And a lot of that comes from the Book of Mormon. So I was really excited that that's what we're going to be focusing on this year. I really love the Book of Mormon. I love a lot of the scriptures and I love the way that it testifies with Christ. I love the chance that I have to gain an even stronger testimony of it this year. And if we go into the introduction of Come Follow Me, it says, This year, as you read the Book of Mormon, pray about it, and apply its teachings, you will invite the power into your life. And you may feel to say, as the three witnesses did in their testimony, it is marvelous in my eyes. So let me tell you my little testimony before I even start out. Um, My little recent story of inviting the power of the Book of Mormon into my life. You know, I was struggling this past year with the transition from one school to another in my job. I'm a school librarian. And one of the things that I was just really having a hard time was with just my overall sense of well-being. Like I was having a really hard time staying positive. I was having a really hard time guarding myself from the adversary, like all that stuff. I was just having just a hard time. And so there were lots of different things that my Heavenly Father helped me put in place in my life to help kind of be a guard against that. And there's lots of outside help like therapy and stuff like that that I rely on. But one of the things that I credit with like the biggest change in my perception of my job and my life and just being guarded against the adversary in general is the conference talk by Peter Johnson from the fall 2019 general conference. And the conference talk is actually even titled power to overcome the adversary. And if you don't remember this particular conference talk, it's the one that goes read the book of Mormon every day, every day, 
every day, right? And at the time, I was doing my Come Follow Me study, no problem. I was reading the scriptures every single day and delving deeply into the scriptures every single day, but I was studying the New Testament. And so at that point, I made the promise to myself that I was going to throw in at least one chapter of the Book of Mormon every single night before I went to bed. And so I did my Come Follow Me study. I did my Book of Mormon study at the same time and just kind of included the Book of Mormon in my life. And I feel like the spirit that carried me through the last couple of months has been so much richer in my life. And I feel like I have been so much more protected from the adversary. And I just feel like the comforting influence of the Holy Spirit has been a little bit stronger in my life as a result of reading the Book of Mormon every night. So I definitely feel like not only does the Book of Mormon testify of Christ, but the Book of Mormon also invites a really special spirit into our lives and into our homes that wouldn't be there otherwise. You know, and that's a huge part of the puzzle piece for me is having that spirit and having that protection in my home. Now, the first section in Come Follow Me says, the Book of Mormon can strengthen my faith in Jesus Christ. And it's referencing the title page of the Book of Mormon. And it says the title page of the Book of Mormon provides more than just a title. Among other things, it lists several purposes of the sacred record. Look for these purposes, and then as you study the Book of Mormon this year, note passages that help you feel accomplish these purposes. Well, that's right. The book title page doesn't just list the title of the Book of Mormon. As I go through it, I look at these other books that I read, you know, as a librarian and just in my general life. The title page usually just has the title. So I feel like what comes underneath the title in the Book of Mormon is actually what would be on like the jacket flap, maybe, of <laughs> like your regular James Patterson bestseller novel or whatever. It kind of describes like what's going to be inside the book. And so they took that jacket flap excerpt and they put it in here on the title page. That's kind of what I feel like we're reading. But to go back to the question that Come Follow Me actually asks, it says, as you study the Book of Mormon this year, note passages that you help feel accomplish the purpose of strengthening your faith in Jesus Christ. And so I was looking for scriptures that I had already read or already knew of that strengthened my faith in Jesus Christ from the Book of Mormon. And perhaps my favorite because, and you guys know it's my favorite if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, because I quote it all the time, 2 Nephi 25 verse 26. And we talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. And I think that's exactly what we do with the Book of Mormon. We talk of Christ. We are going to be using this Come Follow Me curriculum to go to church to talk to each other about Christ. We talk about Christ in our homes with our families as we do the Come Follow Me study this year. We rejoice in Christ. I'm recording this right now in the middle of the Christmas season, and it is such a time of rejoicing in Christ and rejoicing in his birth. And the miracle of his birth is that he came down to earth. He who is part of this perfect Godhead came to earth literally in a human body. And that is beautiful. And we rejoice in the majesty of that. And let's have that year round instead of just, you know, in the month of December. We preach of Christ. It's what Come Follow Me is doing. And it's what every single one of us who gets up to give a talk or a testimony in sacrament meeting or a lesson with the Come Follow Me curriculum, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about Christ, preaching of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. We write according to our prophecies, to the things that we have learned, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. And we do all this so that not only do we know where we can look for a remission of our sins, but so that our children know, the future generation knows where to look for a remission of their sins, not only because we've told them, 
but because we've lived it, because they've seen us talk about it, rejoice about it, preach about it, prophesy about it, and write about it because they've seen that example. And so I love that just holistic approach to believing in Christ that the Book of Mormon gives us. Again, I think this whole episode is all about just being whole. The Book of Mormon just making everything whole. And we have like all the pieces there, right? So title page of the Book of Mormon, which is giving us the purposes of the Book of Mormon, I feel like this is one of the biggest ones. You know, to talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, and prophesy of Christ. Well, let's actually go to the title page of the Book of Mormon and see how right I am about that, okay? So, you know, you can read through it and it talks about who's in there, where it came from, how it was brought back, the restoration, all that different thing, who abridged it, all that stuff. And then we get to the end and it says, also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. And I love that because it's not just the Jews. We're not, he's not just manifesting himself to the Jews, but to all nations, which is what the Book of Mormon does is it gives us that record of him visiting somebody else besides the Jews. And so you have to know that there were other groups of people that he visited as well. God loves all his children. And that's the message of the Book of Mormon too, that he loves all his children. That's a very comforting message to me as well. So that is what I got from the title page of the Book of Mormon. Okay, the second section in Come Follow Me is the introduction to the Book of Mormon, which, you know, is like the introduction that you would have in any normal book, right? And I think the key phrase from the introduction that really kind of sums up what this section of Come Follow Me is talking about is it's from, let's see what this is, the third paragraph here in the introduction. It says, it puts forth the doctrines of the gospel. It outlines the plan of salvation, and it tells men what they must do to gain peace in this life and eternal salvation in the life to come. And that is exactly what the Book of Mormon does. Also, it reminded me of a talk that Russell M. Nelson gave. And the talk that Russell M. Nelson gave was called, oh gosh, it was like the Book of Mormon, what would your life be like without it? And the quote that it really reminded me of was, first, what would your life be like without the Book of Mormon? Second, what would you not know? And third, what would you not have? So I just took a moment to think about it. What would my life be with, like without the Book of Mormon? I think, honestly, I take having the Book of Mormon in my life for granted because there are so many things, that blessings that I don't even see that come from it, that come from knowing it and having it. Um, an example is, again, that comfort that I had this past year when I started reading it again that's something that I wouldn't have had, right? I wouldn't know the entire gospel plan. And knowing things is very important to me. Like I need to know stuff and know how to plan for things. And, you know, I think I would be terrified of death if I didn't know what happened after this life. If I didn't know this particular part of this life, what part it was in Heavenly Father's plan, it helps assure me of that I'm doing the right thing. I'm on the right course, right? And then third, what would I not have? Well, I wouldn't have the gospel. I wouldn't have the priesthood. I wouldn't have the ordinances that I go through every week and partake of the sacrament with. I wouldn't have those baptismal covenants that I renew. Because yes, in the New Testament, we learn kind of about a baptismal covenant there, but we get the real fullness of the baptismal covenants in the Book of Mormon. And that's where we really gain those really rich understandings of the covenants that we are making with our Father. And I think the more we can understand those covenants, the more power that we get from them. And what else would I not have? I wouldn't be sealed to my family forever. I wouldn't be sealed to my husband forever. I mean, there are so many blessings that come because of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the gospel that I have in my life, that I feel in my life, that are just amazing to me. 
One of those blessings that it does bring to us is outlining the plan of salvation, like the introduction says. And it says, the plan of salvation is Heavenly Father's plan to help his children become exalted as he is and experience the joy that he feels. And it references 2 Nephi 2, 25 through 26, which is Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil to act for themselves and not to be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at that great and last day, according to the commandments which God had given. That whole section is perfect. It talks about we come to earth, we have agency, and then we have a savior. And that's why it's so great to have that agency. We're not responsible for the fall. We're not responsible for what Adam did back there. We're responsible for our own actions. We're responsible for acting and not to be acted upon by the outside influences of the adversary that we find all around us in this world. And the Book of Mormon can become a great shield against those outside influences of the adversary. Okay, so let's talk about all the different ways that the Book of Mormon references the plan of salvation. Come Follow Me says the atonement of Jesus Christ makes the plan of salvation possible and every doctrine, ordinance, covenant, and commandment that God has given is meant to accomplish the plan. If you want to understand the plan of salvation, there's no better book to read than the Book of Mormon, okay? It refers to God's plan using a variety of names more than 20 times. During your study this year, notice when God's plan is mentioned or alluded to and what the Book of Mormon says about it. So here's an activity to get you started, Come Follow Me says. It says, read the following passages and list the different names that are given to God's plan. So 2 Nephi 9.13, it calls it the great plan of our God. In 2 Nephi 11.5, it calls it the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. Okay, I love that because not only is it referring to the resurrection and that one day, you know, death will not be a thing for us. Christ has victory over death, so so will we. But it also delivers us from the fear of death, from the fear of never seeing our loved ones again. You know, that's a huge deliverance from death as well, I think. In Alma 12, 32 through 34, it calls it the plan of redemption. In 24, 14, it calls it the plan of salvation. In 41, 2, the plan of restoration. In 42, 15 through 16, the plan of mercy. Man, Alma was like really into the plan of salvation, right? So if we look at the names for each one of these, the great plan of God, the plan of deliverance from death, plan of redemption, plan of salvation, restoration, and mercy. Who does that describe? It describes Christ. Absolutely. That's what this whole plan is about is Christ and his you know, salvation, the restoration, the mercy that he can give us through his plan. Like that is amazing. All those names remind me of Christ. They all point to Christ to me. And so I loved going back and reading all those different ways that the Book of Mormon describes the plan of salvation. Okay. So the next couple sections, this is going to be kind of a trickier part for me. Okay, so I love the Book of Mormon. I have my testimony of it. I hope you guys have seen that so far. Where my testimony of the Book of Mormon starts getting shaky is where you start getting into the restoration stuff. And I've told you before, if you listen to the podcast for any sort of amount of time, that church history is my weak point. I know this. I know this. I know this. And living with someone who is very anti our church That is something that gets picked on a lot. And so I know that that's my shaky part, but it was good going back this week and reading these testimonies of the three witnesses and of the eight witnesses, reading about how they witnessed the world and that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was a miracle and kind of 
going through it in my head and making sense of the different things that, you know, the early church has since released papers about and things like that. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But it's been helpful to me to go through that and to gain a better testimony, not only of the Book of Mormon, that it's the true word of God, but that so that the way it came about had to be true as well. And so I was able to make peace with a couple of things in my mind this week. And I think we're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's go to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was a miracle, that section in Come Follow Me. It says, if someone asked you where the Book of Mormon came from, what would you say? How would you describe the Lord's hand in bringing forth the Book of Mormon? And how did Joseph Smith describe the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith? So before we get into all that, let's rewind and talk a little bit about what was happening in human history. Um, My undergraduate degree is in the humanities, and my parents always said that I would never actually use that for anything because the humanities is basically the study of human history through like the lens of art and music and dance and theater. And, you know, you take all that to look at really what was happening in the human consciousness of the time. And I actually found that it came in handy this time. So, uh, yeah, I'm using my degree, Mom and Dad. I just want you to know um, all that money you sent to BYU has not gone to waste. So if we look at the time period when the Book of Mormon came about, early 1800s, right? So we're actually just swinging out of what we used to call in history the Age of Enlightenment. So we just had the revolution. We've just separated from Britain. You know, the Revolutionary War happened. People were relying so much on logic and rationalizing things out. Like that was very much in vogue. Then we have the pendulum kind of swinging the other way into Romanticism. And that's really what we see in the early 1800s is the Romantic era. And so in art and literature and things like that, we start seeing things that are very much more big ideas versus like the little tiny um, detail-oriented age of logic type stuff. So we have big ideas, we have big emotions, love and anger and, and jealousy and all those different emotions are really what the artists and the writers of the time were bringing to life. I mean, you can even see this in some of the early literature that was coming out. You know, Edgar Allan Poe was one of the big writers of this period. Also, Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter, was another big writer of this period. Do you see how, like, those emotions kind of were coming out in the literature of the time? Another way that this was kind of coming out in the culture of the time was they call the Second Great Awakening. People all over the nation, as it was established at that point, were becoming very interested in spirituality. And this manifested in several different ways. We can even see historically that they were becoming so interested in spirituality, it kind of got a little weird sometimes. Like they were getting into mediums and seances and stuff like that. I don't want to go down that trail. But I mean, that was also a big part of this as well. And we see so many of the churches bloom and kind of come into life. So many of the different denominations that we have here in the South now the Church of Christ, you know, the Baptists, the Methodists, they were all kind of having their heyday back then too. So what I see in this particular picture is the father kind of extending his hand over the United States. And, you know, he's planted these little seeds of religion around and basically sprinkling fertilizer on it and saying, you know, grow. And so all these different religions grew, right? And that's what we have. And then you have this little area in Western New York called the Burned Over District. Okay, do you see like why would Western New York be like such a big deal? Why would all this religiosity center around Western New York? Like to me, that's just kind of an interesting thing. And of course, we know now looking back at it, it's the father's hand guiding it, you know, towards the restoration of the gospel and Joseph Smith having his experience. But it's interesting, like the side effects of that was that this area in New York was like one of the biggest, hottest spots for religion in the country. Right. So you've got all that going on. 
So when Joseph Smith starts talking about he noticed a great religious frenzy, people were crying low here and low there, and he didn't know what church to join. Y'all, he was in the middle of that burnt over district. Like this was not just a, oh, I'm going to go find a new church family thing. Like we see that all the time in the South. I see that. I see that a lot. But I don't think that that's what was happening in Joseph Smith's time. They were getting much more kind of ferocious about it. Like you must come join my church and you must come join this church. And this is, and even getting to the point where they were really kind of getting nasty to each other about it. And it was such a part of the culture. His whole family was involved in it. Probably all of his friends were involved in this. It was something that they were talking about nonstop. So that is the culture that this all comes about in. And we can actually see all of those things, all this buildup. If we go in and we start reading his history about the first vision, So let's go in and read from the prophet Joseph from his words of what was going on at that time. Now, remember, this is the second great awakening. This is the romantic period. So look for emotions in the words that he's using. He's going to talk a lot about emotions. He's going to talk about nature. Just listen to all this because this is all culture that is coming through in his words. I think it's so interesting to see that. So here we go. He said, during this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. But though my feelings were deep and often poignant, still I kept, kept myself aloof from all these parties, though I attended several meetings as often as occasion would permit. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them, but so great was the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things to become to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. My mind at times was greatly excited. The cry and tumult were so great and incessant. The Presbyterians were most decided against the Baptists and the Baptists against the Methodists and used all powers of both reason and sophistry to prove their errors, or at least to make people think that they were in error. It's a little bit of a leftover from the Age of Enlightenment right there, okay? On the other hand, the Baptists and Methodists in their turn were equally zealous in endeavoring to establish their own tenets and disprove others. In the midst of this war of words and this tumult of opinions, that's romantic era if nothing else right there, I often said to myself, what is it to be done? Who of all these parties are right or are they all wrong together? If any one of them be right, which one is it and how shall I know? While I was laboring under these extreme difficulties caused by the contests, these particular religionists, I was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter, fifth verse. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given to him. Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act, I did not know. And unless I could get more wisdom than I had, I would never know. For the teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passages of scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. At length, I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion or else I must do as James directed, and that is ask of God. At length, I came to the determination to ask of God, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lacked wisdom, would give liberally and not abrade, I might venture. Okay, so pause. So I know I've been making little sides all along, but this is where I want to make a big aside. This to me, his encounter with the first vision as we go through it, 
shows to me, this is one of the ways that my testimony was really strengthened this week as I went back and I, I read about the restoration of the gospel, is him going into the grove. He uses language of the romantic area, you know, especially when he talks about struggling against the forces of darkness and nature and things like that. Very romantic literature right there, like very typical of the culture. And then the moment that you have God the Father and Jesus Christ coming down, all that cultural influence drops away and you have the facts of what he saw. And that's where I'm like, okay, so I know this happened because he is bearing testimony so straightforward of what happened. The cultural is no longer present. Like it all fell away. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to pick back up in Joseph Smith history 14. So in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day in the early spring, 1820. It was for the first time in my life that I had ever made such an attempt. Amidst all my anxieties, I had never yet made the attempt to pray vocally. After I had retired to the place where I'd previously designed to go, having looked around and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart. I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me to bind my tongue so I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy, which had seized upon me, and at that very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from an unseen world who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being, just at this moment of great alarm. I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description. Standing above me in the air, one of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointed to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Okay, pause. So do you see, do you see how he's like going on like this big tirade of like all oh, this darkness and I was going to be destroyed and utter despair. And, you know, I mean, it's very kind of like poofy shirt sleeve. I mean, like I think about like, you know, the romantic area that they wore like these big poofy shirts and like pirate shirts. And so that's, I see very, that's very pirate shirt equivalent of literature for me. And then we get to the section, the verse where he actually sees God, the father and Jesus Christ and they're descending. And that verse 17 is shorter than all the description that's come so far. And it's very matter of fact. I saw two personages descend and one called me by name and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Okay, that is the bare facts and what a beautiful bare description it is. You know, he was able to take away all that puffy shirt stuff that was going on in his head and it just, you know, it cleared it all up. Like all this culture, all this, you know, crazy ferocity of religiousness that you are seeing all around you, it all just kind of burns away in this perfect simplicity of God the Father and Jesus Christ visiting him. And that to me was a huge testimony just of of the first vision and the authenticity of it. And so starting off with that and understanding that then helped me go back to reading the introduction to the Book of Mormon and all the other things, the witness accounts and things like that. And I felt a little bit stronger having tackled that first 
And then going in and reading the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith, like Come Follow Me asks us to do. So I hope that you will allow me to have taken that little rabbit trail. I know it was off the Come Follow Me path, but I felt like it was important to do in case anyone else out there was struggling with their whole you know, testimony of restoration and where it came from and all this religious fervor, it wasn't just out of nowhere. Like it had been building up from everywhere from the Age of Enlightenment to the Romantic period that we even saw over in Europe, that whole era of feeling and feeling after things and looking for light that was infecting the whole world. All for one 14 year old boy to walk into the woods one morning. Okay, like that's what I see with my humanities lens. And that's what one of those things I just think is such a cool thing that God had worked that way. That was my little trail off there. Okay, so now let's go back into the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith. How was the Book of Mormon translated? Come Follow Me says it was translated by the gift and power of God. We don't know many of the details about the miraculous translation process, but we do know that Joseph Smith was a seer aided by instruments that God had prepared two transparent stones called the Urim and Thummim, and another stone called a seer stone. Joseph saw in these stones the English interpretation of the characters on the plates, and he read the translation aloud while a scribe recorded it. Each of Joseph's scribes testified that God's power is manifest in the translation of the sacred work. And it tells you to see Book of Mormon translation in gospel topics, which please go look this up. The Book of Mormon Translation and Gospel Topics. If you have ever had any doubts about how the Book of Mormon was translated, any of, you know, the anti-stuff out there about the translation, this is a really good place to start building your testimony back up again. One of the big things that gets thrown around a lot is that seer stone thing. So let's talk about the seer stone. God is really good in the way that he works with us where we are. Um, When it comes to visions and things like that, he takes us where we are and he speaks to us in a language that we know. An example of this is where Peter was on the rooftop in Joppa and he received the vision of the animals and, you know, Peter, don't call anything unclean that, you know, I've called clean that whole vision. You know, it was snack time. It was three o'clock in the afternoon and Peter was hungry. So God spoke to him in a language he could understand. Peter, it's snack time. Let's talk about snacks. Right. And so he spoke to him in that language. I had an experience just last week where I had to make a decision uh, that could really alter my life in several different ways. And I was really struggling. And one option looked very appealing, whereas one option had issues, but I knew it was good. And I really couldn't make up my mind as to what I needed to do. And that night I had a dream and God talked to me very specifically in a way that I could understand. God talks to us in a way that we could understand. Today, if he wanted to bring the Book of Mormon about today, What kind of tools would he use? Well, yes, we have the Urim and Thummim. Definitely that would be part of it. But other tools, I think definitely technology would be involved because that's the life and the culture that we live in. So in a culture that was so like obsessed with religiosity and spirituality and had, you know, even I don't even want to associate the seer stone with this stuff, but they had like kind of weird supernatural stuff going on. Supernatural tools at that time were not that unusual. What the Lord did was take Joseph's mind where he was and the culture that he was, and he was able to bring something that Joseph would be familiar culturally with and able to use that to help translate the Book of Mormon. So let's go in and let's read from the Book of Mormon translation and gospel topics. There's a section in there called Translation Instruments. It says, many accounts in the Bible showed that God transmitted revelations to his prophets in a variety of ways. Elijah learned that God spoke not to him through the wind or fire or earthquake, but through a still small voice. 
Paul and other early apostles sometimes communicated with angels or on occasion with the Lord Jesus Christ. At other times, revelation came in the form of dreams or visions, such as the revelation to Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, or through sacred objects like the Urim and Thummim. Joseph Smith stands out among God's prophets because he was called to render into his own language an entire volume of scripture, amounting to more than 500 printed pages, containing doctrine that would deepen and expand the theological understanding of millions of people. For this monumental task, God prepared additional practical help in the form of physical instruments. Joseph and his scribes wrote of two instruments used in translating the Book of Mormon. According to witnesses of the translation, when Joseph looked into the instruments, the words of the scriptures appeared in English. One instrument is called in the Book of Mormon, the interpreters, is better known to Latter-day Saints today as the Urim and Thummim. Joseph found the interpreters buried in the hill with the plates. Those who saw the interpreters described them as a clear pair of stones bound together with a metal rim. To me, that sounds like glasses. The Book of Mormon referred to this instrument together with its breastplate as a device kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord and handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. The other instrument which Joseph discovered in the ground before he retrieved the gold plates was a small oval stone or a seer stone. As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. So when I'm talking about, they use different instruments and things like that, right? It's very common in that culture. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture. Apparently for convenience, Joseph often translated with the single seer stone rather than the two stones bound together to form the interpreters. Okay, I wanted to put that in there because I think sometimes this is one of the things that the anti-people kind of grab onto, or at least that I have heard, because they're like, you think that he sat there with these like this breastplate and these glasses on? No, he actually had the seer stone that he looked at in a hat. And you know, when I first heard that, I'm like, what? Excuse me. And they're like, go look it up. Go look up Seerstone. Even on your church website, it talks about it. And I was like, what? And it's really comforting to me, actually, that the church has come out here in the gospel topics and started talking about this because for the longest time, they just didn't mention it. They only mentioned the Urim and Thummim. So if you're hearing something that wasn't part of the official church like party line, you're like, is it anti? Is it is this not true? But then there was documentation that it was true. And, you know, it was very confusing when I first heard about it. So I'm really glad that they are coming out and talking more about it and like why he would have used it. So in the culture that he was, it was very common for people to use objects for supernatural purposes. And apparently he already had the seer stone on him. So God said, okay, Joseph, we're going to translate the book of Mormon. I'm going to take something that, you know, the seer stone that you, you know, have an attachment to, and we're going to use this because, you know, the Urim and Thummim, it sounds to me like is probably really bulky. An example of like why he would choose the seer stone over the Urim and Thummim, like I don't take my, you know, triple combination scriptures, the big giant book that I read from every night. I don't take that everywhere with me because it's kind of big and it's like a little bit heavy. But do you know what I have on my phone? I have all the scriptures on my phone and I can take that with me everywhere I go. Right. So a matter of convenience, that makes total sense to me that God would take something that was familiar to Joseph that he already had an attachment to, and he would be able to use that to bring Joseph the Book of Mormon for us to read in our day. Like it was just a tool. 
So if you start getting into the anti stuff with that, don't. I mean, it was that's all it was. It was an instrument of God in the hands of a prophet to translate a Book of Mormon. So I think it's really important to put that out there. Um, Gospel Topics even goes in at the bottom here. It says, some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process, but such aids to facilitate the communication of God's power and inspiration are consistent with accounts in scripture. All right. It gives you ideas of other things like that that have been used throughout scripture, like the rod of Aaron, a brass serpent, holy anointing oils, the Ark of the Covenant even dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to help heal the eyes of a blind man in the hands of Christ. Even Christ used physical instruments that brought about the gospel power. So just because there was a stone with the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon does not make it any less true. So I wanted to put that out there, that my, my testimony out there about that. And you can go back into this gospel topics and read more about the actual process of the translation of the Book of Mormon. And I recommend that you do so because I believe the more that we know, the more information that we have about the founding of the church and the, where the restoration came from and things like that and understanding it clearly and not even just like the general party line, I guess, like as we are taught from the time we're in primary, but how it fits into the general practice of the world like what was going on in the world at the time is this weird compared to what was going on in the rest of the 1800s at the time no no it's not like i mean this was definitely part of the culture and it's even why i think that the preachers turned around and started getting so like nasty to joseph was you know he even says that they were nasty to each other and so he's got this brand new church that he's formed and so they're going to start being nasty to him i also think we tend to think that everything was turned towards him and it, they were all being really nasty to him They were nasty to each other. There were several other denominations founded, like the Church of Christ and other different churches. Seventh-day Adventists were founded during this time as well, and they also faced severe persecution. I don't know that they faced the same amount of severe persecution that Joseph did, but the same thing was happening with other denominations as well. I think ours just faced a little bit more than was normal, and we see that later as we go on throughout church history. But I think it's important that we know where the Book of Mormon comes from. So please go read that Book of Mormon translation and gospel topics because it fleshes that out so much more beautifully than I have ever heard it given before. So I definitely recommend that you do that. All right. The final section in Come Follow Me I want to talk about is down underneath the family ideas. And it says an introduction to the Book of Mormon. A keystone is a wedge-shaped stone at the top of an arch that locks the other stones together. And to help your family understand how the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion, you could build or draw an arch with a keystone at the top. What happens if the keystone is removed? How can we make the Book of Mormon the keystone of our faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, so when I was little, my mom had this game. I think it was called Arch Rivals is what it was called. But it was like this like little teeter-totter thing. And you had these different blocks and they were in different shapes. And you could build up an arch out of any combination of these shapes as long as you had a keystone in the middle. Some of the blocks were long. Some of the blocks were short. They were different colors. And you could get it to balance just fine as long as there was this one keystone block in the middle of the arch. And she would use it all the time as object lessons for stuff like this. But so every time I think about the Book of Mormon being the keystone to our religion, I think about that keystone in that middle of that arch. You know, any other combination of stuff we can place around it, as long as we've got the keystone. And the true keystone of the Book of Mormon is Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And it's understanding who Jesus Christ is, our covenants with him, and our relationship with him. And once we have that in the keystone and the book of mormon confirming that in the keystone be able to stay strong 
So I think that's one of the reasons that Satan attacks our testimony of the Book of Mormon. You know, and me particularly, he knows he can't, well, I hope not, he, he couldn't get to me through my testimony of Jesus Christ and the gospel contained in the Book of Mormon. So he tries and attacks me with like the way that it was brought about, the restoration, and things like that, because he knows that's where I'm weak. So I try and focus all my attention and all that I can on maintaining that keystone, that I know the Book of Mormon is true because it testifies of Jesus Christ. And if I can hold on to that, then my keystone is strong. So this year, as I go through Come Follow Me, what are my goals? My goal through for going through Come Follow Me this year is number one, to learn how does the Book of Mormon strengthen my testimony in Jesus Christ? What are some of the ways that it helps me understand the covenants that I've made to my Lord and Savior a little bit better, to understand them more deeply, how it adds to my life and the understanding that I've already gained from the New Testament of those covenants? And then third, to really gain a testimony of the restoration of the Book of Mormon, how it came about. That's my other goal. So as we go through Come Follow Me this year, that's what I'm really going to be focusing on. I hope you guys will take a moment and think about what your own goals for Come Follow Me this year are and how you can accomplish those. So with that, I'm going to close out the episode. Guys, thanks for listening with me and thanks for being part of my 2020 Come Follow Me adventure. I hope you guys have an awesome week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening. 